AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for October 4th, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Uh, today we're joined uh, online by Jim Clausing. Hey Jim, how you doing? Good. Good to be back after a few weeks away. Yeah, I haven't talked to you in a while, so uh, glad to have you back on the show. And uh, also on the couch here we have Manny Ortiz. Hey Manny, how are you today? Good. All right, thanks for joining us. And as usual, uh, one of our regulars, well we're all kind of regulars off and on, but Matt Kaiser, who is one of the, uh, the mainstays right. of the program. <laughs> how you doing, Matt? Glad to be back, as all right. always. Great, thanks. Uh, so let's jump into kind of the, I guess, one of the big elephant in the room stories uh, that happened this week. And it was one that you were looking at, Manny, regarding uh, Krebs and uh, his, uh, uh, Brian Krebs, his website getting DDoS with a pretty significantly sized DDoS attack. Yeah, so, uh, so this story, um, obviously, if you don't know about this story by now, I'm not sure what rock you've been living under, but I, basically, you know, so Krebs, Krebs uh, website, uh, Krebs on security, um, this is going back uh, a little, little maybe a little more, more than a week now, yeah, yeah. Um, was taken down, right? So it went, it went offline, and uh, it was offline for a substantial amount of time. It was by probably a, about by a DDoS attack. Right, right, by a DDoS. Thank you. Yes. So that's the main point is that it went down by a DDoS attack. Um, so it, it, the the news came out pretty quickly afterwards. I think the the there was you know there was some tying together of like potentially why it had been taken down, and apparently it was in retaliation for a set of stories that he had done about a week before. Um, about this uh, DDoS for hire group, this uh, this v, VDOS, VDoS, I think it was, yep. um, where in the stories he identified two of the people who were involved in this service. Two of the bad guys. Right? Two of the bad guys. Okay. Yes, exactly. So, and later on, these two individuals were actually arrested um, as part of being part of this uh, this VDOS service. So they, they believe that there's a tie-in to that and there was re retaliation. So, you know, so they basically attacked his website, took him, took him, took him down. But the, I think the real big story, and we, you know, obviously this happens all the time, right? We, we see the DDoS attacks all the time. In this particular case, the, the big news here was how big the DDoS attack was. So they're saying that the, the initial attack on his website was about 620 gigabits per second. Um, which is substantial, That's right? I mean, yeah. right. Now that that was the record at that point. Exactly. <laughs> so this gets even more super interesting. I Spoiler think. alert. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so at 620, you know, gigabits per second, obviously you're going to take down pretty much anything. So at the time, he um, Akamai was actually providing uh, pro bono uh, DDoS protection service for his website. Akamai was able to withstand the attack um, for, I think, most of the first day. And then I think at around 4 p.m. on that first day of the attack, they basically told him, look, it's costing us too much money to keep this protection on for you. Um, and by the way, I think the, that kind of protection runs somewhere around $100,000 to $200,000 per year for that type of protection. So it's costing us way too much money. We're gonna give you two more hours and then we're, we're out of this game. Um, so two hours later, they cut off his, you know, they cut off the, the, uh, the DDoS uh, protection service for him. And obviously at that point, he had decided to basically take down Krebs on security. So he took the site down to try to, you know, el you know uh, eliminate some of the, the, fall the fallout for, his uh, his ISP later he was able to actually uh, Google's um, Project Shield 
had stepped up and said, hey, we'll, we'll provide service for you. We'll pr provide that DDoS protection for you, and we can, you know, so we'll stand us the, the site back up. So they did. Mm -hmm. So they stood the, the site back up there, and I'm not even sure, I'm not sure if you know, did, I, I'm not sure if today is he still under? I, I'm, I'm no, assuming, I believe that his site is back up. I believe it's No, up, no, yeah. but I mean, is he still being protected by Project Shield? As far as I know, yes. Yeah, I thought so. Um, so they obviously, one of the things that they were looking at, because obviously this is with this grand of scale with this DDoS attack, they were trying to look at what, you know, what was causing all of this. Um, so there were some linkages um, even early on to this, um, and I hope I'm saying this right, Mirai? Mirai. Mirai botnet. So this Mirai botnet that, you know, ha has been around, but the, they started to link it up to, to some of the, the activity that they were seeing that was attacking uh, Krebs' uh, site, um, which seems to be made up of, you know, like security cameras, routers, DVRs that are connected to the Basically internet. Basically the same thing we've been talking about for the past for two or three years. <laughs> that's yeah. that's yeah. right. That's On the right. internet weather yeah. every week. Uh, so they did a little bit of linkages there. Um, and obviously, you know, at this point, I think, you know, the Krebs is back online. Um, he had get, gotten hit, I think, a couple more times throughout the next couple of weeks. Um, I'm not sure if he ever went full down again or not after he was already protected by Project Shield. Um, but almost immediately after this story broke, which everyone was like, wow, this, that's amazing how much you know, traffic and bandwidth was being pushed at this, you know, at this DDoS attack. Um, but it was quickly found out that uh, this uh, OVH, OVH, this French hosting company, mm -hmm. um, reported a, an attack, a DDoS attack on, on their infrastructure with a 1.1 terabit per second attack, um, which basically puts <laughs> Krebs' attack to shame, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a significant uh, increase in the amount of traffic that you're getting to, uh, to this OVH. So now, you know, this OVH one, it basically right now, I'm assuming if there's a record book for this, has the record. They had looked at some of the devices that were part of, of this, this DDoS attack, and they, what they were saying was that from the capabilities of each individual device, I guess if somebody went and did all the math, that they were predicting that this particular botnet that hit, had hit OVH was probably capable of doing 1.5 terabit per second uh, attack, which is, you know, again, just astronomical. Absolutely crazy. Yeah. Um, so um, the only thing is, uh, the only last thing that I'll say about this is um, that there's been some subsequent uh, stories about the, uh, this Mariah, Mariah uh, botnet, and I think Jim's gonna actually gonna do a story later on about this. Mm -hmm. um, but they had actually, uh, Krebs had actually looked at some of the, what had come out of this, and uh, had seen about some of the device, the actual devices that were involved, because you wanted to check to see whether or not it truly was these IoT devices that we keep talking about. Um, and he does, he does actually have a list out there, yep. um, and I think you saw it, um, of about um, 32 devices that he could somewhat pinpoint. It's not 100%, right. and he says, he says so, but about 32 devices that he was ab actually able to... Device types. Device types right. that he was able to match up with, with default username and passwords that were being used. Yeah. That's really good. That's, yeah. that's good work, too. But I think that leads into definitely uh, Jim's story as yeah. to why he has this list of passwords in the first place. Exactly. Yep. Um, yep. Uh, do we want to jump it to Jim? Yeah. Let's so, <laughs> do it. I mean, uh, thanks for the, like that story. This is a good segue into the next story, which is about the Mirai botnet and the source code relative to it. And uh, Jim, I guess, take it away on this one. Uh, what, what do you have on this story? And, and Brian Krebs actually uh, posted a story on Saturday uh, pointing out that the source code to the Mariah malware uh, had been posted on uh, one of the hacker forums that, that Krebs seems to be good at finding. I've actually got a copy of the source code and I've been looking at it today and I know Stan is not on this week, but Stan's been looking at it uh, some too, and we've been uh, exchanging some some of our findings on it. But uh, apparently, 
person who went by the name Anna Senpai posted on this forum on Friday of last week uh, the source code supposedly to the Mariah malware. And now there's uh, been some discussion. There was a, a good article in securityaffairs.co blog um, also looking at, at this original hacker forum post by the, this person claiming to be the author. So it basically said that the, you know, the heat was on and uh, she, I'm assuming Anna was supposed to be she, but whatever, he or she. In that forum post, though, the this person took exception to the uh, reversing efforts of the malware must die folks, which I know we've talked about them on on the program before, and you know some of us follow them on on Twitter and and so forth. The person who did this post claims that the malware must die folks when they tried to reverse the malware last August did a very poor job of it. I'm not sure whether or not that's true, but the security affairs blog post actually talks, uh, they talked to some of the malware must die folks about, uh, about the uh, source code that was leaked and whether, you know, whether it was legit or not. And they're wondering if, if perhaps it's sabotaged, um, you know, the, that it's a variant of, of what's really in use out there, but maybe it's sabotaged somehow. Not sure, not sure about that yet, but uh, as I said, Stan and I have, have both independently been, been looking at the source code that was, that was leaked. And um, the uh, Krebs attack was actually kind of interesting in that they they generated um, GRE traffic to toward uh, Brian's website rather than you know most of the DDoSs we've seen you know have been you know UDP reflection type attacks or or whatever this one was supposedly GRE which which is kind of odd that's not an IP protocol that we tend to see used in this way, but the the source code that is available, the GRE is actually one of the attacks that's that's coded into it. Uh, it does, as you know, specified earlier, it goes out uh, uh, and attempts to brute force on over Telnet TCP twenty three, which you know we've been seeing is the top port for months now. Has it been a year now? I don't know. Uh, a little bit more than that. I think uh, maybe two or three, but we're going to have a chart on that a little bit later. Yeah. So anyway, uh, one of the other interesting things, though, that Stan and I both happened across uh, today when we were looking at the code was that you can recompile it with a switch to, to do the scanning over SSH. TCP 22 as well. Not a lot of the IoT devices actually have SSH facing the internet at this point. So I think the probably the vast majority of the ones that were used in the attack against Brian uh, were um, were compromised via the the Telnet scanning, which you know, as we've reported for months and years now. Uh, Telnet has been at the top of the list, so it, it looks like that's how this was done. But um, the the source code is out there. I I've only had a few hours to look at it. I think uh, Stan's been looking at it a little longer than I have. So we may have some more interesting findings when we get a little more time to look at it. But uh, yeah, the source code is out there. There, it has a couple interesting features to it um its method it's it's mutex method its method for um, ensuring that only one copy is running at a time is not an os mutex it's 
claiming a, a TCP port, mm. putting a listener on a TCP port. Uh, kind of interesting. Also a, a good indicator of compromise if you can look at your IoT devices and there's something listening on port 48101, that might be a sign that it's infected. But uh, anyway, and so it, it's out there. Uh, I, I suspect that as more people get a chance to um, investigate it over the you know coming days and weeks, we'll find out more interesting features in this malware. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's going to definitely keep me busy for a couple more days. Yeah, so I'm I'm not so worried about uh, Jim and Stan looking at the source code. It's pretty much everyone else that is going to get access to the source code now right. that uh, that I'd be more worried about because obviously, you know, are we can we can we predict at this point that we're going to probably see more of this out there now that people have the code can modify it, tweak it a little bit. Um, and make it do more and more interesting things and, and compromise more and more things out there. Um, you know, so are we going to probably see a, a, an uptick in the amount of devices out there that are compromised? Well, well oh, go ahead. I was right. going to say yes, but also no. I mean, we've had open source DDoS yeah. tools that are run exclusively on IoT devices before. Yeah. We had Light Hydra, which was on Light GitHub Hydra, for a very long time. G-A-Y-F-G-T, yep. um, which is Lizard Stressor, mm -hmm. um, et cetera. So there are these toolkits out there, like you said. The way I kind of see it is there is kind of a um, universe of devices out there that can be compromised, and it's shifting sands. As they get rebooted and somebody else takes it over, and you get these different, like, user, whatever, attacker populations taking over portions of that, you know, set of compromisable devices, uh, but it keeps shifting a little bit over time. But in general, unless everybody wakes up and listens to what we've been saying for the past two years and changes the default password on their IoT devices and realizes that they're exposing Telnet to the interface and whatnot, but I don't think, you know, it's over a million something devices that are out there at least. I don't think we're ever going well, to get to everybody. There's one good thing that I think came out of this. and I, I'm, the, the DDoS attacks were absolutely catastrophic, and the fact this code is out there is bad. But having that list that you could definitively tie which vendors are right. on that list of victims, and then hopefully those vendors will take notice and say, by the way, you got mentioned on Krebs on security. You, you should really be doing something about this. Yeah, I mean, the only problem I have with that is I think most of these vendors are going to be like, well, we don't even have any way to reach back and touch any of these devices because they don't do automatic updates or, you know, depending. I'm I, not I, saying that I've looked at that list. There's no easy way to But I know that fix, there's yes. a lot that are like that where right. you drop it in and the vendor really doesn't have any touch point to it anymore and unless you trigger something to do it yourself to go update. Another, another point that they, um, that uh, one of the articles that I was reading on the, the whole DDoS on the Krebs thing was um, he was expanding on, you know, sort of the IoT and the, the major problem that we're having. One of the other problems is, is that, you know, we talk about default, uh, you know, um, IDs and passwords on these devices, but there's two aspects of it. There's the web-based, mm -hmm. and then there's the, you know, the SSH or the Telnet that's on the device itself. And oftentimes they're different, too. Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. That's, and that's the problem. That's you the problem. You can change one of them. Exactly. Right. Yeah. They're not, yeah, they're not tied together. Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so you may think, oh, great, I'm changing my web login password from the default without realizing that, you know, great, that's so you just, you know, you just closed up one of three holes. Mm -hmm. The other two are still wide open and right. still default. So, yeah, um, true. And, and a lot other, of this is being done over Telnet, although there is some web based devices that um, actually have a remote console type built in as part of their web interface, like a web shell basically built oh. into them. I know that there's a few of those where through that web shell, you can tell it to go, you know, TFTP download something and then run it or whatever. So that, right. that's like a whole nother avenue, which I know a few of these guys are exploiting as a means to compromise because uh, I've seen a few of them. But um, anyway, uh, you, gotta, you gotta make sure you close off everything um, because if you even leave one of those holes open, um, they can get in there. The, the big thing is, and Brian, you know, 
rants about this all the time when he talks about the internet of insecure things is there should not be defaults. Right. When you first right. bring the device up, you should have to set a new password and, you know, just get rid of the default passwords altogether and a lot of this problem goes away. Or you could do what a lot of vendors do, um, randomize the password and print it on a sticker on the outside of the device you're shipping because the physical owner should be able to tell what the password is, but it shouldn't be something that's hard-coded and yeah. exposed to the Internet. Yeah, right. Absolutely. That would go a long way to at least uh, getting some of this to be curbed. Right. Um, but and still, there's such an embedded base out there, I worry, you know. Right. And, and, that, and I think you, were, you made a point earlier about the shifting tides. The one thing that you also have to keep in mind is that that shifting tide is a shifting tide that's doing this. It's yeah. shifting, but it's becoming a bigger. Yeah, it's getting bigger. All it's the getting time. bigger all the time. I mean, there, you know, like every single day, there's another company that's putting something else out there, that's connected, and it's just, you know, that that and that's not going to stop. So that that you know that that field is getting much right. much bigger. Unless we can get all these companies to get on board and you know take Matt's suggestion, don't use default passwords, have auto update processes for your firmware and whatnot, yeah. but. You know that's extra, extra development yeah. time. You got to get people to like write well, the code to do I that. We've talked have back end processes here, right? to support that to allow putting regulations in place for IoT devices would be one area that you could you know potentially at least start doing it. But if they were manufactured in the United States, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, but but you could also put in import restrictions as well. So you if you're going to be bringing stuff into the country, then, you know, have regulations that say, hey, if you're going to bring that device in, it's got to pass at least this minimum set of... Right. Yeah. Well, but, maybe someday. Yeah, well, and in the, in Krebs' article where he, about the release of the source code, to your, to your point there, Manny, uh, he quoted a, a Gartner forecast of five and a half million new IoT devices connected every day in 2016. Yeah. That's Great. staggering. <laughs> well, I had, I'd also heard a quote that if you um, consider the large number of bot devices on the Mirai botnet today, or at least the, the same one that was mentioned in the Krebs attack, um, and the scanning that it's constantly doing, it takes about five minutes in the IPv4 space for whatever is connected to the internet to eventually be scanned by this botnet on those ports. So, you know, and that's not surprising. Look, when, when we get to the Internet weather, I mean, we've talked about it before, but we'll take another closer look at it and, and see why that's the case. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, they can scan the entire Internet in a short order to find. Now, brute forcing might take a little bit longer, but with all these default passwords, they're going to get in pretty quickly to most of the devices. So, um, Okay. Well, uh, I guess we'll see how that shakes out. I know it's whatever. It just keeps getting worse and worse when we talk about these IoT devices. And um, I don't know. I don't know where we go from here uh, other than hope that, like you said, some legislation, some vendors get together and figure out that we need to, when we deliver these things to the consumer, that they're a little bit more secure, uh, not so easily hacked. All right. So on the lighter side of things, uh, or maybe not so much lighter. Uh, it looks like you have a very tattered version of the Android Hacker's Handbook. Take looks it like with you me everywhere I go. I, I always feel bad when I do one of these. I feel like I should be holding up a pristine copy. Yeah, but, but that shows that you actually read I it. I took it with it me. It looks like it's all kind of mangled. Well, this has been to be to several states. Um, so, yeah, the Android Hacker's Handbook by a large number of authors, all of whom are really pretty well known. Actually, you might guys might know Joshua J. Drake or J. Duck from yes. the um, Stage 5 vulnerability. Um, Zach Lanier, I know from at least one podcast, I can't recall which. And then Stephen Ridley, uh, formerly of Zipiter, is a well-known hardware hacker as well. So this, there's a, a bunch of really big names in this book, and I, I apologize if I'm not mentioning them all from personal experience, but this is a serious book. This, of all the books that I've read so far, I keep saying this, each new book is a new list of, a new record number of, of notes, pages I had to write mm -hmm. just to keep this all straight. 12 pages handwritten was this one, and this was a beast. This will teach you a lot about the Android security model, app permissionings, the different attack uh, surfaces of Android, and it goes into deep detail. Uh, it's, it's great that you have so many different people because I think each one of them has a very specific area of focus. Right. But reading this is like opening a fire hose because you've got like several experts telling you everything you need to know about an entire operating system, which is great, but it's a lot to get through. 
Um, so it, the, the interesting things that I found in this book is that the Android attack surface as a platform is interesting and, and in some ways larger than a regular PC because all the same stuff, even running applications locally, that's still a problem. But you've got interesting inter-process inter calls in Android that allow you to do things like, you know, if I want to make a phone call and I click a link in my browser, how that gets sent over to a phone application, perhaps passed through oh, another okay. app to filter whether or not that's a, there's all sorts of like little interesting inter-process things that can happen on Android that make it an interesting attack target. Not to mention it also has how many different wireless interfaces because you know, if, you've got a, if it's a phone, for example, it's got, uh, it's got a radio interface layer, which is sort of the, the black box of all the, you know, you treat it like this one separate part of the, it's like the, the baseband on a cell phone. Right, right. The, the radio interface layer is kind of an interesting complex thing because it, it handles a lot of that communications between baseband and, and main operating system. But then you've got things like NFC, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, right, yeah. uh, GPS if you wanted to go into it. That's technically uh, an attack vector, but it takes a little more work to do that, I think. Lots of really in-depth discussion on fuzzing, um, fuzzing not only the software on the device, but fuzzing over USB and fuzzing USB itself. The list goes on. I learned a lot about ARM. I had never known anything about ARM processors right. and how they have different modes. Um, good refresher on return-oriented programming and exploit mitigations. There's some interesting stuff that happens in Android. Do they talk so about, much. I mean, the one thing about Android uh, that I find interesting, although I haven't really looked into it a lot, is that it's very pervasive. A lot of people mm -hmm. know that it's on um, your phone, mm -hmm. or you can get handsets to have it, but there's tablets. There's televisions, there's who knows what. I know, you know, there's all these different devices that are using Android as the underlying operating system now. Mm -hmm. So do they cover kind of like any different angles with some of these different device types? I think they focus mostly on tablets, phones, and regular consumer devices. I didn't see too much about um, things like televisions or like, you know, house control panels or things right, like right. that. I said, you know, you'd have to write specific drivers for each individual device. And that's kind of the, what we've seen with that fragmentation of Android where each, you know, if Samsung has their own specific drivers right, and, right. You, know, you know, anybody else I can't think of, LG has their own specific drivers. And those are all things that are obviously supported by the, by the system, but it also makes it kind of interesting because there's a certain amount of Android that is always gonna be that open source AOSP platform. And then you've got all sorts of other stuff that no one may not have looked yet at yet, but that makes it a little more interesting because because it's specific, it hasn't got the attention that the rest of the, the platform has. So if you're going to be looking for bugs in Android, you may want to look at the, the vendor-specific stuff because not as many eyes have been on it, in theory. Right, right. Um, one thing about the book is that, like I said, it's so many deep dives and so many topics, you may want to treat it as a cookbook-style book instead of reading it cover to cover. I read it cover to cover. And I, I did feel exhausted by the end, but there were certain topics that I really absolutely loved how they covered it. In particular, the, the hardware hacking section at the end, which was, which was cool, because I've always seen it from an embedded Linux or real-time operating systems perspective, and seeing it from an Android perspective, and the sort of things that, like, you'll learn little tricks that the manufacturers will do, like they'll hide a serial port within a, a headphone jack or something like that, because it makes it easier for testing. Cool things like that. Right. Um, does so it give any tips on, like, so I haven't really hacked around with Android, but let's say I wanted to get started, I'm not even sure where I would start, like, to set up a development or, like, so, some kind of environment to yes. kind of, like, uh, So this experiment. book, it was written in 2014, and a lot has changed. I mean, this was written around when, this came out about when Jelly Bean was new, and mm -hmm. we're already on Nougat, so that's four versions out. Um, I think that's, I'm counting that right. But since then, the instructions in here for setting up your IDE and debugging environment have been superseded. Now Android Studio is the new standard. Okay. So there's a large section of the book that it's not irrelevant. You know, the, the techniques that they're teaching you are absolutely valid, but you'd have to use an entirely different tool set in order to reproduce what they're trying to teach you. And I didn't go through that because I realized it was going to be, I'd be reading the book at the same time, I'd have to translate you know, one to the other. And it, you know, it's... It's a great book, and I think it deserves an update in the near future if the authors are willing to do it. But at, at a certain level, it is a little bit out of date. I know a lot of things have changed within the Android security model right, since right. then. Some really cool stuff. Um, but the majority still applies, so yes. you would give it a thumbs up. Absolutely would yeah. give it a thumbs up. And I, I'd, I'd like to see, if, if they do release a second edition, I'm absolutely going to try and pick it up. All right, cool. Uh, well, thanks for bringing that one to us. Um, it sounds interesting. I've always been interested in Android, especially the more and more things I buy lately seem to have Android underneath. Um, and I'm always kind of like, even um, 
what's the what's the little gadget the the TV gadget uh, we, oh, the G box the G box like G box has Android on it so there's all these little embedded devices more IoT things yep. <laughs> that you can play with that use Android as an underlying operating system so it's pretty cool it's neat to be able to play around and um, understand how they work at a deeper level so all right uh, so next story uh, is one that you're looking at, Jim, regarding risky password practices. Uh, what can you tell us about this one? Yeah, this was uh, a story that was on the HelpNet security blog last, uh, I don't know, Thursday, Friday, something like that. It was a, a report on a survey that Lab42 did of consumers in the U.S., Germany, France, New Zealand, Australia, the UK, and it, some really interesting results. The top ones that they put in the little box right at the top of the article are only 29% of consumers change their passwords for security reasons. Okay. Uh, the biggest reason people change their passwords is they forgot the old one. <laughs> well, I, you know, I can That's probably fair. admit that <laughs> That's probably, I fall into that category too. Well, you, do that, you do that thing where you sign up for a service and then within 24 hours you click on the password reset because you forgot to. Yeah, I, I didn't write it down. I didn't think I would come back or whatever, right? Anyway, continue, Jim, sorry. <laughs> you know, the, so the, the folks that have been saying, you know, people should change your passwords, you know, relatively often, well, with the number of passwords that we've got, you know, I admit that except in, on systems that require me to change them, you know, r relatively frequently. I don't change them all that often either. Although I use, uh, you know, I generate secure ones when I do change them. But um, the, other, the other thing that I thought was kind of interesting was that, you know, it, most of the people, 91%, I think it said, you know, knew all of the the things that we say make up a strong password, but they prioritize, they, they put their, their strong passwords on their financial accounts, 43% retail, 31% social media, 20% entertainment. You know, what, what are the accounts that the bad guys go after first? They don't go after the banking first. They go after the other ones and hopefully, you know, find a way to then progress up to that. So, it, what, you know, one of these things, 91% of the respondents know there's an inherent risk in reusing passwords, and 61% uh, of the people use them anyway. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, um, you know, what, this, is, this is October now. This is National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. Our awareness is working in that people understand the risks, and yet, you know, fifty-five percent of them reuse their passwords, understanding the risk. I, I, I'm not sure what we can do about that. Uh, so anyway, it, it was an interesting story uh, about the psychology of it, uh, and you know, that's that's the part that our um, Awareness programs need to to probably dig into in in more detail. Yeah, I think where where you were going, Matt. Email, you know, if, I don't know where people prioritize that, but you really should even above your financial and whatnot. Protection of your email is one of the most critical ones because um, a lot of websites or sites, well, that's how they do the password reset process is through email. So um, you really want to guard that one really well, as well as I would say, uh, which I don't know if people think about as much, but if you do have like a text messaging on your phone and your provider has a website to review the text messages yep. that come in, you want to protect your access or anybody's access to that website that could provide somebody the ability to see what your text messages were that arrived, because uh, that would give them the ability to do the same thing for either like a two-factor, what they call two-factor authentication for financial institutions, mm -hmm. um, or even just other password resets that might come through that means of, from an SMS standpoint, so. I think the, the fact that people know there is a risk of 
you know, bad passwords leading to their account, accounts being compromised. I don't think it's really a binary thing, risk. Risk is more of a spectrum of is this very possible, is it less possible? Right. It's, is it's it somewhere happen in the middle. To me? And I think until it happens to you, mm -hmm. you tend to push it down towards the it's not as likely, but simply because you haven't experienced the pain associated with it. Right. So simply knowing that it can happen. That was one of the other things they did point out in this that, you know, they, they contrasted the excuses for of the quote type A personalities versus the type B personalities, and there one of their things in, in what they call the type B personality, one of the things was they rationalized their poor behavior by saying, "Well, nobody's going to care about me. I'm not important." <laughs> uh, but I think that's another thing. I, th I think we've talked about you know admins who don't think they're a target because their server isn't anything of importance. And this is the same with users who have an email account. They don't think it's valuable for any reason or any password pair that they've got. They don't think it's valuable because they haven't figured out the value of it when it's stolen. I think Krebs might actually have, they know he has a value of a hacked server diagram that's very mm -hmm. popular. I think he actually has one for the value of a stolen email account. Um, the different things that an attacker could potentially do with that information. And it's never, or, or it's very rarely personal when someone breaks into an account like this. It's just one more account out of many because they have the ability to do it. Right, a target of opportunity, not necessarily that they care who you are or, you know, and know anything about you, but just the fact that they, it's actually probably, in their opinion, better that they don't know who you are because they're just taking advantage of you and they have no real personal connection to you. Uh, not to say that that's a good thing, but I'm just saying, I think that's, again, the psychology behind the bad guy. Uh, but it sounds like there's a lot of interesting things in this report. I didn't read it in full, but um, it sounds like there's a lot of different angles for how to think about how we think about passwords. Um, and with a number of data breaches that occur on a regular basis, it seems lately, uh, passwords getting breached and harvested, it's good to have awareness around password security and um, just being aware, like, if you do use any, you know, real big sites that... Uh, do get compromised that you know to change your password there so that you're you know you're safe um, or to not recycle passwords across don't different recycle sites. passwords across sites yeah. right because if they can get it from one site and you use that same password in other places they're no dummies these bad guys they'll go try that on your three or four other you know well-known services like Facebook and Gmail and whatnot and see if that same password works um, so uh, be smart about how you uh, you you know practice your password security so, all right, uh, interesting, thanks Jim. And let's go to the last story before the internet weather, and it's the Mr. Robot Report. Is this the final episode? This is the final. Because I'm a behind, but it's okay. It's the final two. Oh, it's the final two, yep. okay. So they actually had a part one and part two. The last episode was called Python, and they're not actually referring to the programming language, and I don't want to spoil that. It's a very okay. it's an interesting metaphor that they use at one point during the show. Okay. Um, but the second to last episode was rather trippy. Um, there's a scene where Angela is stuck in a room with a little blonde girl who looks a lot like her, and the little girl fires up an old Commodore and starts playing adventure games, except it's a little bit weird and twisted. She's asking Angela questions that are questions a little girl should never ask a grown woman. Um, but it feels a little bit like if you've ever seen uh, uh, the parallax, the parallax view, or the game where they're doing like a weird psychological test. That's how it plays out. But okay. she's sitting there at this Commodore, and she's she you know she's, she types in the load command, which is right. you know accurate. Load star command, command one. Yeah. See, someone's done it before. <laughs> with, Assuming with it's a, on with disc. With a five and a quarter inch floppy. Correct. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're nothing if not accurate. You got to notch it so you can record on the uh, upside down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Boy, we're really showing our age. <laughs> Continue. But the discs that they had in the little... There's a, there's a particular game she plays, but there's a number of other discs that are in there. And the titles of them are games like Man Maniac Mansion. Right, which was the, one of the best games ever. I oh, yeah. Oh, I never played it, but I played Day of the Tentacle, which was the sequel. And Maniac, you should really go back and play Maniac yeah. Mansion. Okay. It was really good. They had Pitfall. <laughs> All these great characters in the game. Anyway, go on. Okay. <laughs> and then there's a number of floppy discs that are in there that are named after... Um, there were a certain set of DOD books that were referenced in the movie Hackers. And they're, okay. they're called by those names, like Big Red Book That Won't Fit on a Shelf or something like that. Although a couple of those names appeared in there. So this is, is kind of like some weird dream sequence Absolutely. or something that she's having here? Okay. Yeah. It's not very really clear if that was real or not, but uh, kind of trippy. But they brought out the old school uh, yeah. technology for this. 
sequence. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. It was kind of weird because part of the dialogue she's having with this little girl, like she wouldn't, she'd say something, the little girl would just repeat what she just said, which felt like an adventure game. Like if you're not saying the right responses, you're, you'll be stuck there until you figure out what you're supposed to do next. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, there's one part where I think it, Price and, um, and White Rose are talking about Bitcoin and they're assessing what, you know, Bitcoin is, it's this, it's that, it's not that great, it's good. And someone's saying that the limit is reached on the number of Bitcoins that have been created. Now, unless the show happens in the near future, yeah. it's not quite true yet. There is a hard limit. Right, there is. eventual right. hard limit, but it's not going to... I don't to, think they're near it yet, I right? don't think they are. But, the creation has really slowed down at this point, mm -hmm. but still, I think But the other point they make is that it's, it's the, the mining is monopolized by Chinese miners, and that has actually come to pass, where there's a large number of miners in China that it makes it that if someone within China were to control all of that, they could actually tip the balance. There's a certain, um, I think I explained this when I did the, the Bitcoin book a while back, but at a certain level, you know, everyone in the network has to agree, and if the, anyone ever controls 51% of oh, those miners, right. they can all collude and lie about the state of the system, and at that point, you know, the whole thing is basically shot. Right, right. So, but that is, that is a legitimate concern, so that was kind of interesting. Interesting, okay. Um, the part that I really loved in this episode is there was a menu that, um, that Elliot finds on the floor, and it turns out to be a message from another character, but it's, it's uh, a coded message. And he's reading out the words, and the words spell out in, in Rot 13, mm -hmm. um, the parent papers will help you find your calling, but don't be duped. Cut down the words, they be Erdos. And that was just weird enough that I remembered where I'd seen that before. The DEFCON 22 badge puzzle. Oh, okay. Which is a huge nerdy shout out to Lost and the guys over there who have made those games for years at DEF CON. For people who haven't been to DEF CON, yeah, there's Def always Con a badge puzzle. Cool. Oh, yeah. yeah. But the, there's always a, a puzzle that involves the badge and sometimes art within DEF CON and then a whole bunch of websites. And this was lifted directly from that. So it was a reference to using certain mathematical formula to remove letters out of the sequence, which eventually led to him, to the person winning the game in the, the game. But. Um, it's part of the plot. Right, right. So that was cool. And um, second half, there's a few little jokes in there that I thought were worth mentioning. Um, the, uh, there's a scene where Darlene's being interviewed by the FBI, and the show airs on the USA Network, and they made references to Blue Sky and the phrase, characters like you are not welcome here. Anyone who's ever seen an ad mm -hmm. on USA, yeah. the slogan for the longest time was characters welcome. Right, right, right. So right, that right, was kind right, of yes. a funny little in joke, right. and I, th I think it was made with the best of intentions. There's a scene between uh, Elliot and another character, which I can't mention because that'll spoil things. Okay. Uh, but they are talking about reverse engineering the firmware on uh, un uninterruptible power systems, oh, okay. UPSs, which is kind of cool. And they're using uh, Binwalk and Radar, and Binwalk is, is typically used for analyzing firmware. It can be used for analyzing all sorts of files, but typically for firmware reversing. And then Radar is a uh, command line uh, reverse engineering tool, kind of, kind of like IDA, mm -hmm. uh, where you can take a look at the um, uh, the assembly for for a particular right, binary. Yeah. So that was kind of neat to show that yeah, of course they're going to have the correct tools. The last season they had an after final episode scene. They also had one in this episode, and uh, gosh, so many things I don't want to reveal. But there's a conversation that happens between two characters outside of the fries. Fry's Electronics Store yeah, yeah. in Phoenix. And I, had, I knew that it was, I could find out which one it was because every single Fry's, the front looks like something strange. The one in Phoenix looks like an Aztec temple or a, a Mayan temple, I, I might be getting that wrong. The one in Vegas looks like a giant slot machine. It's, each one is, is unique on the outside. Right, right. But that's also one of those, the last remaining big electronics stores from the old age that you can buy all sorts of computer parts at. So just like Micro Center in the last right, episode that Center, I talked yeah. about. Prizes in this one. So okay. I was, I was kind of happy to see that as well. Uh, and one thing that I did mention, oh, I shouldn't say this. This is a big spoiler. It's okay. Spoiler time. I've folks. read your spoiler notes your here. So. You did. <laughs> Tyrell, yes, that's so right, Tyrell dead. is not dead. But Tyrell was sitting there. He's running Binwalk and, uh, and Radar, and he's using Gnome. Uh, and if you remember the very right. first episode, yes, Tyrell says, oh, KDE yeah, guy. I'm a KDE guy. Right. So something has happened. And there's, there's a little bit more to it that there's definitely a, a shift in the way that Tyrell has started behaving, especially towards Elliot. So I'm not sure if, if Elliot somehow converted him from one window manager to the other, uh, but that's, that's an interesting little, little tidbit they threw in. Uh, yeah, I don't know what that would mean. I mean, <laughs> why that would be significant in any way, but uh, interesting. 
at least I would say uh, come join us on the gnome side because I don't know why anyone would use KDE. <laughs> no. But I don't want to start a religious war here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, any other uh, any other tidbits on the show? No, I mean, the, the cool thing is that there's all those websites they've created that are references to things that are happening in the show. So, like, for the episode one where they had the, the computer game that was, you know, on the Commodore, mm -hmm. that's actually somewhere, and you can play it on the web. I don't have the link. Uh, but you do have to type the load command in order for it to actually oh, okay. start up. Right, right. Um, and there's one little reference to Configura Industries, which was in the very beginning yeah, of the show, was... the notebook that he had. Yep. That building shows up in the final... The final episode. Yeah. Oh yeah, interesting. Okay, so it must be whatever a fabricated building or something. Right? I don't think that's a real thing. But, yep. Um, all right, cool. So I guess we're not going to be talking about Mr. Robot for another year now. This is true. Oh gosh, what are we going to talk gonna, about? Are you going to be okay? I'm, uh, <laughs> I have to buy a box set. Have they been renewed for a third I, season? Do we know yet? I don't know I officially, can't but I can't imagine that they haven't. Been. Well, Rami Malek did win an Emmy. Right, so, yeah, so I, I imagine this is wildly successful for for USA, and I, if they did not create a third season, they would be shooting themselves in the foot. Right, yeah. Why would they not? Yeah. So, okay, cool. All right, let's jump into the internet weather here, and uh, there's only a few things really that uh, to talk about, and one little observation I'm going to talk about um, of a longer term trend related to the IoT stuff. But uh, in terms of the most pro ports, this is the most reports most probed, not necessarily who's, how many people are doing it, but just by sheer volume of probing at that port specifically. Uh, not surprising, 23 TCP, 22 TCP, your Telnet and SSH are in there, 3389 TCP, remote desktop protocols, so all these are gonna give remote access to the, the machine. 443 TCP is in there as well, which is HTTPS, could be for any variety of reasons, I'm not quite sure why that would be in there, other than just trying to find websites. Uh, 1911 TCP is the um, Tritium, AX? Tritium Niagara yeah, home automation one, probably benign, or I should say not benign, but this is re mostly research activity. I don't know that there's um, anyone specifically exploiting that. Uh, 21 TCP is FTP. Could be any variety of reasons that you'd be seeking out FTP, especially if it's anonymous and it allows me to write things there. That could be a good place to stuff things if I'm a, uh, a bad actor. <laughs> oh, there was that one, um, that cryptocurrency mining malware. I'm trying to remember the name of it, but it was mining Monero, that pseudo, that more anonymous cryptocurrency. Oh yeah? Yeah, the one Were that uploads photo.scr and uploads to FTP. Oh yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. You've yeah. seen that. Yeah. Uh, yes, we have seen that. Um, there was also used to be another piece of malware that I can't remember the name of that used FTP as a means to exfiltrate credentials stolen from the machines, whether that would be, I don't know if it actually engaged in scanning, but it used FTP as a means to collect uh, the credentials in a one spot. Uh, 80 TCP is your web, 2323 TCP, we have seen an uptick in this. I think when we last report, or last time I was on and reported it, which was a few weeks back now, it had shot up like an enormous uh, number of positions, like hundreds of positions. Uh, but now it's kind of like leveled off at that. Uh, it's probably Telnet type scanning. We know that there's some devices out there that listen on port 2323 as an alternate to 23 TCP. I think Mirai actually does go after 2323. Is it? Yeah. So that might be, that might account for like why we see more of these than we had been in the past. Uh, so they're actively looking for Telnet-like interfaces on that port to try to brute force into. Um, so we're seeing, you know, a continued... Um, level of activity on, on scanning on that. Yep, you are correct that it does. I just took a quick look at the source code, and that's it checks both 23 and 2323. Okay, well that's interesting then, because that might be one of the few that actually is doing that. So when we look at the 2323 TCP chart, we might get a better idea of how many bots we're actually seeing relative to Mirai. Um, so 445 TCP is your uh, Windows file sharing, SMB. And then uh, 123 UDP is um, NTP, probably people just looking for NTP servers that they can use for reflection type purposes and whatnot, because that's a really good, if you can get an NTP server that responds, uh, that has the, I forget what that. Um, mon list. The, the, yeah, mon yeah, list, yeah. yeah. If it can respond to that, you can really get a lot of bang for your buck as a return, as a bad guy. Uh, one packet you know, towards a reflector and you'll get hundreds going back sometimes to the target. So uh, 
it's a, it's a good one for people to scan if they want to engage in DDoS or NTP reflection. So the one thing about this one chart, the only thing really in terms of the number of probing activities, I kind of took a spin looking at this a little bit more closely. This is remote desktop protocol. And uh, we have been seeing that up in the chart more so lately. And when you look at the 180 day trend here, this is six months about, you can see that there definitely is some kind of pattern here, but it's very uh, erratic, uh, the scanning activity on this port. I don't know why it's erratic. It doesn't follow the types of behavior that we normally see, or at least it's probably not botnet related. We don't see a lot of hosts doing this, but the few hosts that we do see are doing it in great numbers in the amount of scanning they do. So that might account for this kind of erratic type of chart here. What I did is I tried to smooth it out a little bit to just try to see what this looks like. And we have the ability, so the top chart is the unsmoothed chart, the raw data, and the bottom one is taking an eight week mean where we drop the highest and the lowest, and it kind of lets me smooth it out a little bit, even though it's still very erratic. But you can see that there is definitely somewhere around the middle-ish of June, we started to see more of an uphill uh, climb in the RDP scanning activity. It's a little bit more evident, at least, when you smooth it a bit here. That's one to keep an eye on. If you have devices, I know a lot of people, a lot of corporations, have their desktops that they provide or notebooks that they provide to their employees. A lot of them have remote desktop open for various reasons so that the users can RDP in if they VPN and whatnot. But um, when they're off the network and they're on the internet at the coffee shop, there's the potential for somebody to, to get access to it. So you wanna make sure you have really good password policies on your, uh, your corporate network and the, the way that um, your Windows authentication is going to work. You don't want to allow people to have really dumb passwords because they could get brute forced into. Um, or your servers, you know, don't don't put servers out there. Windows servers, remote desktop protocol, um, restrict who can speak to those and only allow, you know, subnet ranges that you expect to want to be able to connect and remotely administer or manage those devices. So um, good one to pay attention to. If you can get RDP to a server, you can do a lot. So we talk about Telnet and SSH a lot, which is mostly Linux type machines, Unix machines. Windows machines, you can do a lot, you know, if you get a full graphical interface and you're able to work with it as a bad guy, it's a really rich environment to be able to work with in terms of uh, having how a about, place to... How's automation over RDP? I don't, I mean, there are some tool sets that can help with that. Um, I haven't really used many myself. Um, there, and there are a lot of RDP brute forcing tools out there that will do the brute force process. I'm just saying once you've RDP. gotten your, your, uh, your access over RDP, can you script something that yeah, does all the cooking Yeah, it's probably not through? as easy to script, I will admit. Mm -hmm. um, Although you could do something similar to what the, um, the rubber ducky does, if you, you know what I'm talking about? The, I don't think I do. So the rubber ducky is a device that you plug it in and it, it associates itself as a, a human interface device, like a keyboard, oh, okay. and it starts hammering out commands on the keyboard. So if you were to do something like you automate your RDP session, then you start sending some sort of command that, like you hit the Windows key, right. and you bring up run, and you type command, and you just work from there, you could probably get the same effect. You probably could. Or, I mean, another thing you could do is just drop a rat on there, uh, yeah. and then you're good to go, right? Um, so you could drop a rat, or you could write your own thing in auto IT, which really facilitates uh, Windows scripting mm -hmm. um, and automation of doing things with Windows. And, you know, I, th I guess it depends on what you're... Yeah, I was still in the headspace of compromising for the sake of building out an IoT botnet or, or just a, any old botnet. So um, being able to automatically run your payloads quickly and, and configure things, scripting right. makes more sense for that. But right. if you're you plan to be there for a while and, and poke around the system, absolutely, RDP is, is useful. Even, yeah, even, you know, there have been RDP, I know we're digressing a little bit, but there have been RDP-based worms like Mordo, mm -hmm. which they can get, once they get in, they drop the malware on there and then they start spreading. So there, it's a worm-based thing. So it's not, you know, if you're, if you're trying to like script actions, that's probably not a good target for RDP, but you could drop Windows malware on there and then really build out a botnet that way. Um, or use it for other purposes, you know, mm -hmm. as a hot point for something, you know, to bounce, because then you might RDP from there to something else, something else to help obfuscate yourself if you're a really advanced type of attacker. Um, so anyway, it's a, 
it's an attractive uh, target for attackers. So best to protect it if you have any devices exposing RDP. Over to the most sources probing, uh, this is the one that typically will give you some indication of botnet-like behavior because this indicates that there are a lot of sources doing scanning on specific ports at the same time, relatively speaking. Unsurprisingly, 23 TCP Telnet is at the top of the list. 445 TCP, your Windows SMB type stuff uh, is at the number three position. These ICMP ones, I usually kind of, I disregard those as probably backscatter type things from other connections being tried to be made um, and port unreachables or things coming back. So I don't really uh, attribute that to security relevant stuff. Uh, AD TCP is the web. Uh, and then we see 2323 TCP in here as well. That slipped down a couple of positions, but it's still up there. And we're going to go take a closer look at that chart. 27015 UDP jumped up 15 spots. And I actually wanted to get a chart of this, and I forgot to do it. I suspect, if, so this is related to Valve software, uh, the Steam, you know, it's for the game to kind of do the game directory listing thing, mm -hmm. which does have a peer-to-peer -peer kind of appearance, uh, just the way it works. The game browser, when it go to, it'll try to hit all these different devices, see if they're listening on 27015, and then you get kind of a speed, how fast it is and whatnot. However, there are some indications that this port, since it is UDP, uh, can and maybe has been used as a reflection vector for um, you know amplification attacks. I don't know what kind of amplification you get, but just like you can with DNS and NTP, and I'm sure there's another one I'm forgetting, but there's SSDP a bunch of- SSDP or- uh, Yeah, yeah, SSDP, yeah. There's all these UDP ones that you could spoof your source IP, send a packet to a reflector, and he'll reflect hopefully a larger packet back to the, the spoofed source IP. Mm -hmm. So you're bombarding your target. So this with, is for like matchmaking in, in multiplayer rooms for gaming or? Uh, usually, uh, so if you've ever used Steam or the Valve, uh, like the game client browser, yep. you have your list of servers, and you can say refresh that list. And when yep. you refresh it, it'll go hit like 30,000 different servers and try to get the speed on each so one. So there's your amplification. Yeah, it's so, probably not much long of a command to send, give me the new list. Right, right, right. So you could probably do something like that. I don't really know what that handshaking looks like. Uh, but since it is UDP, there's potential that it could be used as a reflection vector. Um, uh, so I think that might be what people are seeking out here. Uh, in the past, we know that we've seen it. Just the way that client works to us kind of looks like somebody who is doing scanning because it's one guy tries to like sweep across 10,000 different IPs at the same port and see what he can get as a response. But um, in reality, that situation is not necessarily, he's not really scanning. He's really just trying to get a sense of what's the fastest game server for me to connect to. Um, but that being said, I think it can be used as a reflection uh, method as well. Uh, the last one, 4028 TCP, we've talked about no real concrete evidence, but it may be, we know there's some loose ties to the Light Hydra botnet as a, a port for some sort of management of it. There could be some reason they're scanning for that as well. It could be related to the IoT stuff. Uh, but we really haven't um, kind of dug in to really determine exactly what's going on with that traffic. Uh, but I suspect it might have something to do with that. So this is a three-year chart going back to early 2014. Because Jim had mentioned uh, how long we've been looking at this stuff. And here's the kind of chart about uh, how long we've been looking at it. So back on January 31st, 2014, um, you can kind of see we had our first major bump up where really prior to this time, you can see there's just a trickle of scan sources. And again, this is a scan source. This is the number of unique sources scanning 23TCP. Um, very low. I mean, in the hundreds to maybe a thousand total number of scan sources per hour. It jumped up on January 31st, 2014 to about 40,000. So all of a sudden we went from a very small number to 40,000. And it kind of stayed and shifted around there. The next big spike, I would say, in my opinion, was around January 5th, 2015, about a year later, where, again, it peaked up to about 150,000 scan sources. So we went from kind of a 40,000 peak and 
drifting around that area to uh, a threefold increase up to 150,000 scan sources. That did kind of trickle down again, but then it resurged in the middle of 2015. And we started to talk about this. I know we've been talking about it forever, but it, it kind of hung around the 50,000, got up to 100,000. And then this is where I think we all really started to pay attention. A lot of people are too now. It jumped up to 250,000 on June 1st. So in the middle of the summer, we went from you know a peak of 150,000 to 250,000. The thing surprising about this is that it did not descend again. It hasn't kind of receded uh, where we had seen that you know for about a year back in 2015 where it kind of just stayed at a level. Um, I attribute probably, this is just me eyeballing, that probably 2015 timeframe, all these 50,000 or so bots, continuous level, probably related to lizard stressor actors and whatnot, because we know that they were really active using these IoT devices for that. There are probably some other people in the mix there too, but I think they were one of the bigger. Well, that would uh, be VDOS then at this point. Right, no VDOS, yeah. right. Now this, uh, this bump up to 250,000 occurred June 1st. Subsequently, it's kind of going up and down and up and down. And now I would say it was September 22nd, we peaked out at just under, it's like, a few thousand scan sources per hour under 450,000. So that's pretty significant that we've gone from two years ago, about a thousand was the most we ever saw scanning on Telnet. Uh, you know, then it went to 40,000. Now we're at a tenfold increase from what we saw, you know, at the peak of 40,000, we're at 450,000 scan sources per hour. That's pretty significant. The reality is it's probably a few million more. We don't have perfect visibility of the internet, obviously. Um, but, uh, you know, for sure there's at least 450,000 of these infected devices out there at this time when we're looking here. Um, when we've looked at, you know, we've done some spot checks. Of course, you can't check 450,000 devices. Krebs has done his own analysis of some of this. A lot of these IoT devices, home routers, uh, security camera DVRs, all these little embedded devices running a little embedded Linux uh, on an ARM processor or something like that and um, having default passwords on there. So um, anyway, it's, uh, it's not improving, as we already discussed at the beginning of the show, the way we started it. But um, um, it's definitely reached new levels of high. And hopefully, so what is this time frame? June to September? June, July, August, September. So four months, hopefully four months from now, we're not looking at 900,000 on here. Um, but I guess we'll see. You said they're adding, what, at 9 million? Who said? 5.5 million. Or maybe right? it was you Jim. 5.5 million. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, okay, we well, I guess we'll see. Golden days of, of a couple hundred. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Never see that again. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Um, so, this is the scanning on 2323 TCP, which is not associated officially with Telnet. I put this port that is listed here, I don't even know what it is. But um, that's the, the IANA listing of what it's supposed to be, I guess. But um, it's really mostly used as an alternate Telnet port. Again, lots of IoT devices seen in this activity. This is just a 30-day chart. Uh, we did have a really initial big surge in scanning, up around 55,000 scan sources doing it here at the peak. Uh, but since then, it's kind of you know, sitting down around the 10,000-ish maybe, or between five and 10,000 scan sources per hour. And it's kind of starting to trickle down here a little bit too. I don't know what to make of that. Maybe it's related to Mirai. If the numbers we are hearing are right, about 145,000 devices in this botnet, that gives us some kind, some kind of idea that, well, maybe our numbers are off by a factor of 14 or something, I don't know. Or, uh, I shouldn't really say that. The reality is, is if I was a botnet operator, I think Brian has mentioned this as well, you probably wouldn't have all of your bots in your botnet engaged in scanning. You'd have a certain number of them doing the scanning, some other ones doing um, uh, uh, you know, DDoS activities, and maybe another held in reserve, not doing anything in case something happens. Recruiting. But, what's that? Recruiting. Well, that's the scanning. Well, that's the scanning. <laughs> no, that's the scanning. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, uh, so uh, definitely a port to keep an eye on, uh, especially if I know once people find out about it, the other botnets and other pieces of malware that scan for Telnet will probably start looking for this port too. It's not just going to be Mirai doing it. But um, 
and I don't know how many devices are out there. I don't think there's a huge number out there, but I really haven't ever tried to look to see you know, how many devices out there listening on 2323 TCP. And that's the show for today. It was a long one. It feels like a long one today. We had a lot of topics to cover. <laughs> uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. You can also find the AT&T Threat Track program on the AT&T Tech channel. Uh, it's also on YouTube and iTunes. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Business. I'd like to thank you, Jim. Thanks, Manny. Thanks, Matt. Uh, I'm John Hogeboom. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe. Views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.